Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Centuries-old pictographs on remote public land remain vulnerable to tampering and vandalism. In recent months, disrespectful people have spray-painted, carved over and destroyed irreplaceable pictographs on federal land in several locations around the country. It's often difficult to find and charge the perpetrators because witnesses are hard to come by. Today we'll get a rundown of some of the recent incidents and discuss ways to protect valuable rock art. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Shirley Jihad, in for Antonia Gonzalez. A new report says a housing lending program aimed at helping Native American veterans falls short and is severely underused. The Government Accountability Office issued that report this week. It says only a tiny fraction of people get help under the Native American Direct Loan Program. It's operated by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. It is supposed to assist veterans who are Native American in buying, building, or fixing up housing. But it helped fewer than 1% of those eligible. Over nearly the last decade, the report says, the program originated 89 loans in the contiguous United States, 91 loans in Hawaii, and zero in Alaska. And that all represents fewer than 1% of the nearly 70,000 eligible veterans. Revenue from a new cannabis enterprise planned for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians Reservation in North Carolina could rival the tribe's gaming operations. That's the assessment of Jeremy Wilson, the government affairs liaison for the tribe's principal chief. Wilson also chairs the tribe's economic development arm. Wilson says the dispensary on the Kuala Boundary land could be one of the largest in the country. We have to look for different avenues in economical diversification. So for cannabis and the excitement around it, uh, this will definitely present us an opportunity that could be, you know, well worth um, close to a billion dollars. Wilson says the lack of competition would currently work in the tribe's favor. The tribe intends to start selling cannabis by the start of the new year. Marijuana remains illegal in North Carolina and the surrounding states. The Eastern Band of Cherokee only recently allowed medical marijuana sales on the reservation. The former chairperson of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe is now on trial. He faces charges of bribery and extortion in connection with the tribe's planned casino project. Cedric Cromwell is on trial at the U.S. District Court in Boston. Prosecutors say he used his position as chair of the Wapanoag tribe to get $60,000 in bribes. In exchange, prosecutors say he gave a $5 million contract to a Rhode Island architecture firm. The owner of that architecture firm is also on trial. Cromwell's lawyer says he denies the charges. He calls Cromwell a transformational leader who helped the tribe improve its future. The casino plans for the tribe based in Cape Cod have been delayed for years because of various legal issues. In Nebraska, officials have found the body of a Native American teenager who had gone missing last month. 19-year-old Ashley Wabashaw was a member of the Santee Sioux Nation. Tribal leaders say her body was found on the reservation. They offer no further information. Now the FBI is investigating her death. 
After a lengthy debate this week, the West Hartford Board of Education in Connecticut, in a divided vote, decided to invite leaders of five recognized Native American tribes to come speak about the issue of team names and mascots. That's to happen at a public meeting in May. The school board there already committed to replacing high school teams' names, warriors and chieftains. They plan on approving new names for the school's teams by June. But a handful of residents are speaking out at meetings, petitioning the community to keep those names. They say they talked with tribal leaders, and they claim, the residents claim, that tribal leaders told them the names are a source of pride and should remain. School board members who voted against the effort say it is redundant. They say the school board has already gone over all of this and already received feedback in writing from tribal leaders. With National Native News, I'm Shirley Jihad. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Native American Disability Law Center, a non-for-profit 501c3, at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Vandals recently spray-painted pentagrams and swastikas over pictographs at La Cineguilla Petroglyphs in New Mexico. Some of these rock art pieces date back thousands of years. In December, a different group of vandals carved their names over a prehistoric rock carving at Big Bend National Park in Texas that is approximately 8,500 years old. And last year, the birthing rock in the Moab area of Utah was scribbled over with profanity. Tribes have connections to rock art and petroglyphs left by their ancestors. The ongoing threat of vandalism and destruction has become a constant source of concern, And government officials and the general public also have a stake in protecting these priceless treasures. So what can be done? That's the big question for today's discussion, and you can join us. Are there ancient rock art pieces and petroglyphs in and around your native community? How important are they to you? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are now open. Joining us today from the Kashaya Indian Reservation, we have Reno Kayoni Franklin. He is the chairman of the Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians and a member of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Welcome to Native America Calling, Chairman Franklin, and please feel free to further introduce yourself. Hey, thank you. Uh, just a quick sound check, make sure you can hear me okay. You sound great, Reno. Tell my tribal members that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so in my Iwa, Toshi Shima Emta Reno Keoni Franklin, Chairman Kashaya Pomo Tribe. Uh, I would also just uh, point out that uh, on my, my mother uh, was uh, was um, both Mi'kmaq Indian and uh, from Molokai, Hawaii. 
and uh, and she is a Maka'iwi. And so on the Hawaiian side of my family has a Maka'iwi and Kumu lineage, uh, both things that I'm very proud of uh, and equally as proud of uh, my uh, my Kashaya blood that uh, runs deep in my veins too. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll also just point out that, uh, yep, I am a, a council member on the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Uh, I'm an Obama appointee that uh, started in the Obama administration, uh, served through the Trump administration, and uh, is currently hanging around in the Biden administration. So uh, I am not 70 years old. I am 48. I just happen to be uh, in three presidential administrations at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really impressive resume there, Reno. And again, thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing some of this background and your credentials, which are obviously very impressive. Reno, uh, vandalism, native rock art, really upsetting and disturbing to learn about these recent crimes. Is this a growing problem, desecration of cultural sites? You know, I I mean, is it growing? No, uh, it isn't. It's always been here. It's it's, uh, colonialism at its best. Uh, What matters to you only matters if we tell you that it matters, right? And that's that's the uh, that's the the attitude of uh, the non-native people, not all of them, but the ones that do this kind of business and this kind of foolishness and damaging our sites. And it's been happening a long time. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a tribal historic preservation officer, former chair of the National Association of TIPOs. And I've been a, a TIPO for, you know, gosh, more than 10 years. And uh, my introduction into the, 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 the rock art vandalism space happened back when I was in my early 20s. You know, I was just kind of a powwow rat doing my thing and uh, um, was uh, had a good friend, and her and I were up visiting uh, her family up in Yakima. Uh, and uh, and while we were there, my uh, my Uncle Kelsey, he uh, he took me over and showed me right there. Uh, I'm, I don't want to say too much about the location, but the Yakima people listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. And he uh, he took me over to where that this, this uh, petroglyph site was, and you could see the bullet holes, you could see the spray paint, you could see that the tribe was trying to keep that thing cleaned up, but yet these uh, same yahoos had come back and vandalized it over and over. And, uh, you know, that was that was the first time I'd seen that. That was really tough to see. It was a very, very sad thing, you know, and, uh-huh. and uh, like I said, I was in my early 20s then, so that was my introduction, and it's never stopped. It's well, never who, stopped. Who's doing this stuff? Is it kids? Is it older people i mean how malicious is the intent i guess that's my question yeah so it kind of depends right you, know, you have the, the the kids that are just partying around um and people are really i think they're too forgiving for those kids and their bad decisions they make because these are you know thousands of years old in some cases these rock art sites so you definitely have those kids that are doing that um and then you have uh you know, you have the, uh, the the wholesale market, the black market. Uh, we've seen that in, in uh, federally managed uh, parks, where uh, folks have gone in and, and cut those um, cut those pieces off. Uh, you know, and they make their way into the black market, get sold all over the place. It's one of the reasons that uh, there's a lot of Indian people keep an eye on the French marketplace because uh, France will sell anything that's Indian, and doesn't matter where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, ill-gotten gains are a frequent thing that comes on, up for sale there. So yeah, you know, you have a little bit of the, the black marketplace that uh, the Antiquities Act and ARPA were supposed to have uh, corrected, but um, you know, probably not enough teeth in those uh, in in those federal uh, protections to uh, that make people think twice about 
doing this kind of foolishness. And, and speaking of those protections, I mean, who's actually there at the site on the ground? Who's responsible for protecting this rock art, these pictographs? Whose responsibility is that? Well, this is going to have a. I'm probably going to kind of tick some people off by saying this, but I want to make sure that everyone knows that in my response here and in, in to this question is is from a Kashaya point of view. So from my tribe, okay, and every tribe is different. Um, we are. We're responsible. Kashaya is responsible for the the rock art that's on our lands, and uh, in, in our worldview, um, all Indian people are responsible for those things if it's their ancestors that left them behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the first layer. Right. The, we all know the reality is, uh, you know, through treaties, through removal, through genocide, uh, through federal laws, and and uh, things that have prevented us from accessing, um, that we can't or we're not allowed to go onto these areas without you know being shot at, persecuted, uh, and a lot of times they don't even tell us where they're at. Right. So uh, so, you know, the the the, the second part of that is that. Um, you know, we haven't been given the access to protect these. There's no, there's not co-management agreements in place to not just say tribe go and protect that, but to say tribe, here's a pool of money so that you can hire your own tribal members to go and ensure that this site is protected and safe, and vandals ha- are not getting access to damaging it. And you will come up with ideas together, right? So, so the first responsibility is us. Second responsibility is those who uh, are. Uh, have, have, you know, and I hate to say this, but ownership, right? So, you know, they own the land that these sacred sites are on uh, and, and them not giving us access mm-hmm. uh, and them not going into co-managements. And, and if they do, it, they expect us to foot the bill, you know, rather than just give us that land back, we'll do it ourselves, right? Okay. Right, <laughs> so, right, yeah. yeah and and yeah. you have many of these sites are, are, are located on, on BLM lands. And how how receptive is, is BLM? How engaged are they in these conversations? And how proactive are they with regard to making sure that these sites are protected? That's a great question. So, you know, if you look at Section 10 of the National Historic Preservation Act, it says that, you know, that um, federal agencies will incorporate protections to archaeological sites, sacred sites, you know, places like these, petroglyph sites. So I think the first thing is to look at and evaluate whether uh, the protections that have been put in place by the BLM as a whole, right, not every BLM uh, agency that is all across Indian country and and federal lands, and look at and say, okay, have you lived up to your um, legal mandated responsibility, right? And then so uh, if you do, you'll see that in some areas, BLM is amazing. I mean, really goes the extra mile. And in other areas, um, I would say, you know, it's criminal. And, uh, and you know, and their, their efforts, um, you know, in, in the areas where you see these kind of vandalisms that are happening on a regular basis, what are you actually doing about it? You know, well, BLM, what are you doing, right? Well, I don't think they're doing much. Why do you so think— and why do you think um, their approach is so uneven, as you mentioned, doing great in some areas and then horrible in others? Yeah, that's a you know that that's every federal agency is like that. You know, there there is, you know, here's why: because there's no mandated training that that people who interact with tribes and tribal resources. If you're gonna, if you are a federal official, a federal employee. You interact on a land basis with American Indian tribes, right, and traditional people. There's no there's 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 optional trainings that can happen 
There's nothing that says in concrete you will be certified annually. You'll be certified to make sure that you understand how to talk to tribes and that you know how to be respectful to tribal resources. I mean, you know, those trainings exist for somebody wants to, like, hang out with an antelope, but to protect our cultural resources, it's an option. And that's the reason. At the heart of everything, at the heart of all this, right, it's not laziness. It's not anything else. And the inconsistencies can be cured by consistency in training and expectation. Okay, consistency, training, expectation. So we're going to talk more about these issues and and what can be done to better protect these invaluable cultural landmarks. On our show, you were just listening to Chairman Reno Franklin and giving the perspective, and he is based there in California, and some really, really pivotal insights in terms of some of these recent events regarding desecration of cultural landmarks and sites. Folks, if you have a question or a comment for our show today, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We'd really like to hear from our guests today as well as our listeners, and that's you. So please chime in with your insights, with your ideas, with your suggestions, your experiences for how you address some of these issues in your own Native community. Again, Native America Calling, the number one 800 996 Always, we welcome all perspectives and opinions on our show. We're going to take a short break. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We'll be right back. Once water goes down the drain or gets flushed into septic systems, it's easy to dismiss where it goes. But proper attention to wastewater is a foundational concept in protecting the environment and people's health. As Earth Day approaches, we'll talk about the importance of Native wastewater treatment. That's on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about protecting rock art and pictographs today. Join our conversation. Tell us about the ancient rock art that's found around your native community. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. I'd like to add another perspective to the discussion today. We were able to connect with Angelo Baca. He couldn't be on the show today, but he wanted to share his thoughts. Angelo is the cultural resources coordinator for the Uta Dene Bikea a group protecting Bears Ears National Monument, and a doctoral student doing his dissertation defense as we speak. He's Navajo and Hopi. He says rock art contains important information that we continue to learn from. Some of the amazing things that we can learn from petroglyphs and rock art are some extinct animals, flora and fauna, the change of technology over time, different migrations and passages of various cultural groups and people. And I think you can see thousands of years of stories on these walls that someone took time, care, effort, and attention on putting on these walls for people to enjoy and come back to and admire. Rock art is important to me because it is a story that reflects who we are as indigenous peoples. 
I think there are a lot of different interpretations that people have, and we will never know 100% what these stories mean, but we know that there are various representations, symbols, reflections of the indigenous peoples themselves, such as a region or a name or even clans, affiliations with different plants and animals and places. And these are very important for cultural identity, but it's also very important for protecting the heritage for future generations of both indigenous peoples and the public of this country to learn more about these lands and the people who are in them. Rock art is important inside of my dissertation, as I mentioned, the incident that happened with Richard Gilbert, who had uh, allegedly drilled some holes uh, in the sunshine wall as he was climbing and was uh, damaging that part that had petroglyph and rock art on it uh, unintentionally. And a secondary incident also happened with the birthing rock that depicts uh, indigenous uh, beings giving birth that was graffitied, vandalized, had um, some racist and derogatory uh, labels placed onto it, which is in effect an extension of indigenous women uh, contemporary struggle against violence that has been perpetuated on them uh, by larger dom dominant society. And I think this is an important correlation to draw because what that does is essentially objectify indigenous peoples as a thing. So if you look at rock art and petroglyphs as a thing, that it can be broken, vandalized, graffitied, manipulated, damaged, what that does is dehumanizes indigenous peoples and puts our indigenous women at risk. So what we need to do is to ensure that these rock art petroglyphs are protected as well as our women in our own community. And I think what helps us to do that is to not see these rock art and petroglyphs as things or objects. They are an extension of us. Native people see themselves as part of the land. So we are one. So it's a whole paradigm shift for the American public to think about being good stewards of the land. It's not just about coming and doing whatever that they want. It's about visiting with respect, being careful with the plants, the animals. I think rock art and petroglyphs can teach us that people have been in these places for a very long time and they have taken care of it very, very well. That's why it's beautiful. That's why there are visitors coming there and folks from all over the world are coming to see these places, to admire it, to respect it and to take good care of it. And countless generations before you have been doing that and plan on doing that into the future. So I think that's very valuable for us to see it just as special as art in the Louvre, like the Mona Lisa or even the Library of Congress. There's a lot of information, documentation, historical data that should be respected and protected. That was Angelo Baca, a doctoral student researching rock art. He mentioned the Mona Lisa and the comparison between native rock art and other cultural landmarks. And if you've got a question or a comment for our show, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Let's add another voice into the conversation now. Joining us from Bishop, California, is Monty Bengochia. He's the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Bishop Paiute Tribe. He's Paiute. Monty, welcome to the show. 
Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for letting me come in, and <clears throat> thanks for playing uh, uh, the old late Sam Kinney song, or I, I, more than his song, but the hand game song that you was playing. Um, I think the lady from Shures was singing it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I appreciate that, but I appreciate uh, hearing Reno Franklin talking to a gentleman who just spoke about, uh, you know, uh, the women, the women folk, indigenous women folk in relationship to protecting cultural resources that are in stone or in rock. And, uh, yeah. I don't, you know, um, go ahead. Maybe you could ask me a question. Yeah. But I, I got some. Yeah, you bet, Monty. Absolutely. Tell us more about the rock art that can be found in your area. Uh, most, uh, they're scattered here and there. Uh, we went through a pretty intense vandalism, uh, 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 I don't know how many years ago it was. It was maybe six, seven years. I wasn't the tipple at the time. Another gentleman was. And, uh, you know, I think it was done uh, what you could do. Uh, so now I'm looking at how can you maybe prevent. And uh, I think it takes some uh, some capital and some arrangements with uh, with the public lands uh, uh, people, BLM and U.S. Forest Service uh U.S. National Park Service, uh, and and if you got state lands in your area, uh, you know, and working with uh, with private lands, uh, it, it, there there needs to be a big overhaul because uh, a lot of this uh, this problem uh, could be maybe partially solved if we had law enforcement out there, if we had patrol out there, and uh, just about three weeks ago, I went out into uh, BLM lands. Uh, to check out a, uh, a a cultural resource sign that was uh, taken, uh, and so when I go out there, kind of by myself, I, I ain't armed. I I worry about the these kind of like these uh, Nazi Ku Klux Klan kind of folk, uh, and you know you're out there in kind of uh, out there in the middle of nowhere uh, with no radio service that at least I don't have. And, and you know, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I haven't been to federal law enforcement school, so I advocate that. Uh, we have 80, I think it's an 85,000 acre MOU with BLM to co-manage uh, a portion of our homelands. And uh, and I remember I was on the council when we were negotiating, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, that process, and uh, I did I bring up law enforcement, uh, but it didn't uh, receive. Uh, it wasn't well received from from the federal agency there, and uh, so I, I think how do we get the, the the financial means to 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 set up our uh, you know our police force uh, out, out there in our homelands, which is also public lands, is sort of a, a big a big uh, question. And uh, right. I know the U.S. Forest Service. They pay back. They give a little back payback to the local county government and city governments wherever their national forests are. But I have never seen this uh, seen funds come back to the tribes. I'm not saying that hasn't been done or can't be done, but at least I in, in my region it hasn't been done. So I'm just mm-hmm. kind of rambling about you know uh, maybe uh, uh, maybe how to prevent. Sure, sure. No, this is great, Monty. I really appreciate all this background, all these insights. You got a lot of experience on this issue. We do have a caller on the line, Tomas, and he is listening in Santa Fe, New Mexico on KUNM. Tomas, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, you're on the air. Sure. 
Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just want to say, like, uh, just a few weeks before these uh, La Cienegilla petroglyphs that were vandalized just outside of Santa Fe, um, I photographed them. I uh, I do photography. I was out there uh, taking pictures, and um, then a few weeks later, I read in the paper about this vandalism, and it just breaks my heart. I mean, those are really sacred um, sacred images particularly to the uh, the Pueblo people here in New Mexico. And uh, I think, uh, like the previous caller mentioned, we need a sheriff out there or law enforcement to uh, kind of um, go out there and take a look and see who's, who's, who's hanging out. Because when I was there, there were a lot of tourists and uh, dogs running around. And I don't know, it just seemed like they didn't have much respect for the area. Um, I took a bunch of photos. If any law enforcement agency or the city of Santa Fe needs uh, these photographs, I'd be willing to share them with them to see what they looked like before they were vandalized. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that, and uh, thank you for taking my call. You bet, Tomas, and thank you again for sharing. You're just out there at the site. Now, I do want to ask you, Tomas, because my understanding is this site uh, there at La Cienegilla, it's actually pretty close to the highway, so it's, it's fairly accessible, right, to the public? Um, yeah, you have to kind of, it's, you, you have to know where it is, but you know, with GPS nowadays, anybody could find it. Um, but, uh, it, it's a hike too. You got to get in there. So these people that went in there knew what they were doing. They just weren't hanging out with their spray paint. They, they targeted that area, uh, purposely. So and do you like think I said, it, we need a sheriff or somebody out there. Do you, do you think it was, was politically motivated then? I can't say. I, I don't know. But, you know, uh, I think there were swastikas and, and pentagrams, which is kind of like devil worship or something, which really, really is is, is uh, a terrible thing. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I haven't been back. I just can't. I, I won't go back there right now. Um, it, I just couldn't, you know, go back there and take a look. Um, I just have the photographs in my file. Um, I must have taken at least 100 pictures. But uh, maybe it was. Uh, I, I can't say. Uh, the newspapers have said that uh, it might have been politically motivated. But we have a lot, of, a lot of newcomers coming into the area, and a lot of these people that are moving to Santa Fe, they have. It seems to me they have no respect for the Hispanic and Native people. That's just the way I see it. Mm, okay. Well, thank you again, Tomas, for calling in, sharing uh, what what you saw and what you know about the incident here in New Mexico. Monty, uh, there was a notable incident in 2012 in which someone drilled into uh, this rock art and, and stole it, actually just drilled in it and took it away from the cliff that it was uh, had been there for thousands of years. Tell us about that. Uh, I wasn't around. I don't, I can't, I, I just know it was taken and uh, that the, whoever did it's never been found or, you know, as far as I know. Okay. Do you know so, how the tribe handled that situation? I believe that there was a, an effort to, uh, to, to have uh, a, re- a reward put out. That, oh. uh, again, I I don't think it ever okay. turned out any. Uh... Sure, sure. Reno, what do you know about that incident back in 2012? Yeah, I remember hearing about it, you know, and uh, I remember at the time the uh, the tribes 
you know, we're, we're, we're putting information out, looking for trying to find, you know, who had done it, kind of a, has anybody seen or uh, keep an eye out, that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, I never ended up hearing it with the final disposition if they ever found anybody or, or if it was ever returned, but I'm pretty sure it, it, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that's just, you know, that's what, that's what, that's what happens. You know, right, right. They, uh, we never hear. Monty, do you know of any, uh, any of these desecrations, any of this vandalism in which anybody's actually caught, charged and prosecuted with these crimes? Are you familiar with any cases like that? I, I know that there's been cases of, of probably grave robbing that's been, uh, we were just talking about it last night. Uh, another kind of a cool thing about uh, my group or, or I'm associated with is uh, there's four or five of us local tipples from different communities in the, in the Eastern California. And so we're talking about, uh, we got together last night to talk about a, a uh, t- to uh, get a, this um, Patsy Auto, um, um, Rick, uh, Rick, it's called the Patsy Auto Historic District nomination into into Reno Reno's group uh, eventually, but right now we're going to the State Historic Preservation Office people. But it it kind of uh, it kind of uh, what was what was uh, said by one of our tipple leaders uh, from Lone Pine. Uh, there's really no teeth in the law. I think Reno might have mentioned that too, just 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 now, uh, to to do uh, to effectively ma- make it a make it a real crime for for these a- actions, and so I think uh, we just maybe have to look at working to to make it a little more um, uh, I mean more of a major offense and and uh-huh. put these people in prison. Uh, that 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 do that do these this vandalism or or dig into the into the into our our people's graves. Absolutely, yes, and, and and you know, obviously, some of these people have malicious intent. These swastikas that we just learned about, uh, pentagrams, things like that, really disturbing. But then, uh, as we heard from one of our guests earlier, Angelo, who mentioned that sometimes these are mistakes, like this rock climber that by accident drilled into the side of, of this rock art. And you wonder, well, how would somebody like that be dealt with? Uh, that was not malicious intent. They didn't uh, set out to destroy or vandalize. Obviously, that's not politically motivated. It's just somebody out rock climbing, enjoying an afternoon out in a beautiful rock somewhere. And they accidentally drill one of their spikes into the wrong place. And, and whoops, here we go. We just desecrated uh, a sacred site that's thousands of years old. Uh, how, how do we deal with something like, something like that, an issue like that, a situation, a person like that? Or, you know, I'd like to hear from our listeners. What do you think? Give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. That is the number to call today. Again, we are talking about rock art, and we are learning a lot today about some of these recent incidents. Uh, there have been cases in California, as we've learned today, also here in New Mexico, one recently near Santa Fe. Uh, really disturbing in that situation. But again, uh, these incidents happen uh, with frequency, unfortunately, and it's happened for a long time. And as we heard Reno mention earlier, it's not necessarily growing in uh, in frequency. 
kind of ongoing, but it's certainly concerning, certainly disturbing, and we really want to hear from you. What do you think? 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Native America Calling, and I'm your host, Sean Spruce. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strongheart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strongheart's Native Helpline. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on rock art and pictographs today. What do you think can be done to stop vandalism and disrespect to historic treasures on public land? Still time to join the conversation? 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. We really want to hear from our listeners today. I'd like to introduce our third guest, on the show today, joining us from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is Linnea Sundstrom. She's the chair of the Conservation and Preservation Committee for the American Rock Art Research Association. Welcome to Native America Calling, Linnea. Thanks, Sean. Hello, Native America. Um, what a great conversation. I'm, I'm really happy to be here today, and I was second everything the um, preceding speakers have said. Um, I uh, help out with this uh, group. It's it's a pretty diverse group of people who are interested in rock art. And um, I guess my role in the group, it's, it's a volunteer role, is to try to make the group more active in actually preventing damage to sites Mm-hmm. and um, just trying to figure out ways to, to deal with it better um, in order to preserve what's what's there. Sure. And, Linnea, earlier we were talking about, you know, what is the motivation? Are these kids, or is this, are these politically motivated attacks on these cultural landmarks? So I'd like to know your thoughts. Do you think protecting rock art is mostly a matter of awareness and education, or is it something else? Well, um, I, I would uh, agree with Chairman Franklin that the incidence of, of vandalism probably really hasn't increased, although it may have in the last couple of years. And a lot of that recent stuff does seem to be, I'm not going to say it's politically motivated. I'm going to say it's a hate crime because that, that's a more accurate term for it. Um, it's a deliberate disrespecting of what is there. Um, and I really hate to see it. I don't know if it's possible to um, per- prosecute these as federal hate crimes, but it would certainly be something to look into. So who who's doing the damage? Some of it is kids. 
some of it is drunk people. Um, there was uh, quite a egregious case like that uh, in the Southwest not too long ago. There's a case of a university professor who was taking geological samples and drilled into a rock art site. So it's a real mix um, of um, of motivations. And I, I wish I had the answer. You know, the carrot in this situation is to do public education, try and get people to understand the importance of protecting and respecting these places. The stick is is prosecution. The stick is law enforcement. And uh, I do want to follow up on one of your questions. Um, there have been successful prosecutions of rock art vandals. Um, I've been involved in a couple of cases as expert witness. But one of the problems that I see, and I'm speaking now kind of not on behalf of American Rock Art Research Association, but from my own experience as, as an archaeologist. Um, one of the problems is that a lot of the federal agency uh, prosecutors prefer to settle these cases out of court. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that a lot of times it involves a non-disclosure agreement, which means that the person did a stupid thing they got caught. Now they're embarrassed. So they're willing to pay the fine, but they're going to say that the agency cannot put anything out into the media, into the press about what happened. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is a big mistake because uh, one of the things that we can gain from these really unfortunate incidents is to let people know there's going to be consequences if you Absolutely. Vandalize these sites. Absolutely, yeah, because we, we we want that recognition, right? We want these events to to be publicized so that people understand this. All part of the awareness. Absolutely. Speaking with Linnea Sundstrom uh, with the American Rock Art Research Association, we do have some callers on the line, and we also have an online comment. Uh, this commenter suggests one effective way might be to emphasize education in addition to punishment. Have Native experts visit school classrooms to talk about these issues. That's somebody who commented online. And we have a caller named Joe listening on KISU in Idaho Falls. Joe, you're on the air. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I, I just want to let all the all your listening audience know that uh, I, I'm an Anglo, uh, and I, I was born and raised in Montana, and uh, uh, I, I've, there's a, a place, uh, some rock art that I've known about since I was a, in junior high, and I'm uh, I'm 64 now. Um, but th- this was a uh, just uh, south south of Dillon, Montana. There's a there's a, a spot along the interstate. It, it used to be like a, a two lane highway when I first discovered this rock art, and the interstate went through, and it actually acted as a form of protection. Uh, for this this uh, this piece of rock art, um, and I've never seen it defaced or anything like that. I I travel that route, uh, you know, two or three times a month, and I've never seen it defaced or anything. And the, the interstate actually acted as a as a buffer because nobody can stop along the highway and and climb over the series of fences and whatnot. And and I see that piece of art there every time, and it's like a a piece of my history.
history and something that I've always had a, 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 a stop, you know, a, a spot in my heart for. Um, my family owns a piece of property over by uh, Great Falls, Montana, and there there are teepee rings there that that. Uh, some of them are on the on the on the property, and then some of them are on some BLM ground that's really close. There's a buffalo jump there and whatnot. And one of our biggest fears with with that is that uh, somebody's going to discover a, a route into those teepee rings, and that uh, the uh, uh, they're at the, at the buffalo jump and uh, and desecrate that area. Um, um, it uh, and and I've I've asked several different people. Uh, um, about how to protect that, and nobody really has an answer for me. So maybe if, if somebody could address that and, and let us Absolutely. know what we can do to protect those historic areas. Absolutely. Linnea, could you comment uh, on Joe's question? What can be done to better protect these sites in, in, in your mind? You know, it's a it's a really tough thing, um, and I Joe brings up a good point, um, and my work is mostly on the um, Northern Plains and Northern Rockies. And I, I will say that he brings up this point that the landowners are typically very good at protecting the sites on their property. They're, they're quite um, adamant about uh, protecting these places. And then a lot of times the privately owned sites are, are in better shape than the publicly owned ones because those landowners can control access. That said, um, I I don't really know, I don't think it's possible um, to, to come up with a magic answer to protect these places. It's important to know what's there. It's important to record what's there so that if something bad happens, um, we have that record as the uh, one caller said, where he had those photographs, you know, that type of thing becomes evidence if they do catch the person. But, um, you know, it's, it's just something that takes a lot of different angles and Mm -hmm. you can try to control access. You can put up fences, but sometimes people just think the fence is a challenge to be overcome. Unfortunately. Um, It's very difficult. And, um, I, I agree with the, the commenter that public education is very important. Okay. And uh, right. that's, you know, that's about all we have to work with. We don't have a lot of tools in the toolkit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it just seems like we're just uh, more resources, more capacity to, to address these issues would just be, would make a world of difference, Lenny. I, I totally agree. Let's go to our phones again. We have Jen listening online in East Texas. Jen, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you very much. I just wanted to say quickly that, like the caller who called in who liked to photograph the work, the petroglyphs, I used to visit quite a few, and I would reproduce them in clay, and especially of the lower Colorado peoples. And there's a place along there called Newspaper Rock that many years ago, like 20 years ago when I was there, People had to face them. And just just so that people know, there are several places in Texas or wherever Indians occupied. And history is depicted like the conquistadors as they came through. They're written into the rocks and on the stones. And the, the, the white shaman preserve near the Pecos uh, near Comstock is now uh, 
controlled by the WIT Museum, which is wonderful. So you have to have permission and have tour guides. Uh, and the same thing happening at the Seminole Canyon State Park. And, of course, uh, Hugo Tanks near El Paso has been defaced several times, but it's very old. You know, uh, back when the land was being settled, it was a major pass by. And then, of course, I just um, found a new one, which I haven't visited, which is at Kickapoo Cavern State Park. So if you just, um, I, I, you know, they're out there, and, and it's wonderful they have people and I did. I was on a personal tour guide when I went to many of these. So, uh, and, and a lot of the tribes just haven't had the money in the past to take proper control and process people who do this. You know, it's uh, it, it's kind of up to us to teach our children, like the the lady just said. So, thank you very much. That's all I have to say. Well, Jen, thank you so much for calling in. We do have time for another caller. We have Tim listening on KYUK in Bethel, Alaska. Tim, we are running a little low on time today, so if you could keep your comments pretty concise, I'd sure appreciate it. But again, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, thank you very much for taking my call. Um, we have, uh, uh, we have, we don't have uh, rock art as per se, but we do have what, they call, what we call yugok in the Yupik language, uh, which means um, <clears throat> uh, play people or imitation of people, rock pilings on top of uh, mostly high areas. And generally people in the area leave those alone and um, <clears throat> try not to touch them or disturb them. Disturb them. Uh, we don't have any real good historical um, re- uh, reference to why those rocks were put up there, but some of them have been up there for ages and ages, as you can tell by the amount of moss and growth that that has occurred on them. but uh, we are very, 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 very blessed that we are very, very remote in this area, that um, a lot of those sites are largely protected just by just by virtue of uh, being inaccessible at the moment. But we have um, contingencies of, like, uh, sport hunters and uh, perhaps hikers and miners or uh, prospectors and whatnot visiting our lands and uh, just uh, would hate to see some of those uh, monuments be taken apart and torn down. Sure. But that's my comment for today. Well, Tim, thank you so much for calling in and sharing that Alaska perspective as you just did. Uh, you know, as, as we talk more and more about this issue, I, I think one of the recurring themes that comes back again and again is this issue of of, of, of funding and, and money to actually address these issues, whether that means an incle- increased security patrol, whether that means education and awareness. So I, I'd like to bring Reno back into the conversation again, um, Chairman Franklin from uh, Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians. And Reno, uh, I'd like to give you the last word on the show. We've got a couple minutes before we have to r- wrap up. But what can be done to to get more funding available to address these issues with regard to people desecrating these cultural landmarks all over Native America? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm actually testifying in front of a congressional committee on that next week. So there is some legislation that is being proposed um, we can get a little more info to you on that. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to just also just encourage people. Um, if you're wondering how to manage these sites, remember this. 
that conversation, the foundational piece of that conversation starts with Indian tribes. And if you're wondering how to protect that, and the caller that called from Montana, good on you about having those rings and protecting them. If you want to know the best way to, to advance that and to include that as a living history with the tribal people whose uh, ancestors put those uh, TP rings down, um, I am encourage you to go to nathpo.org. N-A-P-H-P-O dot O-R-G. And there's a state-by-state listing of the tribal historic preservation officers that are in the United States. And, uh, you know, if you want to look in Montana, there's several of them. Uh, And you can call one that's the closest to that area. And, uh, you know, same thing anywhere else in the state. You can call for the, you know, uh, the, the closest in the area. And they'll usually know if it's not them, they'll know who the contact is. And, uh, and you can have those foundational conversations. And you're right, uh, you know, that sometimes, not all the time, but quite frequently that private land, our private landowners, you know, they're the allies in most cases of Indian tribes in protecting these sites. Now we need you to be the allies and helping us to co-management them with you and helping us to gain access back to these places again so that we can make some of those ceremonies to make these lands right again. That's rock art, which... Uh, is frequently on private lands too. That's archaeological sites, sacred sites, cultural sites, ethnobotanical materials. Okay. So, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for the last comment. Appreciate you, Sean. You bet. And I know we had a lot of callers today. And if you weren't able to get through, please, the con- conversation continues online, or you can comment on Facebook or Twitter as well. And of course, we have now reached the end of the hour. So I would like to thank our guest, Chairman Reno Franklin, Monty Bencochia. Linnea Sundstrom and Angelo Baca for a thoughtful dialogue about vandalism and desecration of cultural sites. Please join us tomorrow for a discussion about wastewater management in Native America. Do you know what happens to that water that goes down your drain? Tune in tomorrow to find out. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a -a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. CMS program. Ikayur minyarasi, ikayur sahasi diabetic tune. Nunakitinitosi. Ilati minyakosi. Contact Lua local Indian healthcare provider. Kai Sakangwasi tour Lua healthcare.gov. Nakakila Lua 1 800 318 Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.